Well, as you're being seated at this time, we will dismiss the children that have pre-registered for our children's church at this time. That's ages three through kindergarten. Those that have pre-registered, you can meet Pastor Nathan and Miss Amy over there at the door. And they will uh, walk with the children over to the classroom, the taller nursery, where they will be having children's church this morning. And as they're studying over there, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 14. John 14, verses 15 through 24. John 14, 15 through 24. Before I read this text, I wanted just to say a word about the structure of this passage as well as other writings that you will read from John. Uh, in the teachings that we're in in John 14, 15, and 16, you'll find that Jesus often circles around. In other words, it's not a strict outline. When you read the letters of Paul and you have pen and paper, you'll find they're easy to outline, point one, point two, point three. But in this section, Jesus doesn't teach like that. It comes circular. He'll make a point, and then he'll, he'll teach, teach, and then he'll come back around to that point. So sometimes it's easy to get lost or hard to see the connections. John's writings in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are like that also. So I wanted to tell you, if you're reading in this section or you're reading the, the Johannian and the Johannian epistles, don't be frustrated by that. That's just the way that he teaches, coming back and reiterating things. And you'll see that in the passage we read. So I direct your attention to John 14, verses 15 through 24. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in, in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? And not to the world. Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me. He will keep my word. And my father will love him. And will come to him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine. But the father's who sent me. Let's pray together again. Father, we ask your blessings upon this time of proclamation. We come to you in the name of Jesus. For that is the only way we can come into your presence. We were reminded in Psalm 24 by the question, Who can ascend to your hill? And we are told no one can unless that person is, is pure of heart and not given over to falsehood or deceitfulness. And Lord, we confess that... Lord, we're not able to say that we 
are doing those things. But our confidence is in Jesus who is righteous, pure, and holy. So it is in His name that we ask You, O Lord, to be gracious to us. To draw us closer to You that we would love You more and walk obediently. Grant this so that the glory of Jesus may be seen in our lives. And the church said, Amen. In the year 2018, at the end of that year, an organization known as the Global Wellness Institute released the findings of some research they had conducted. They found that the United States is number one in the world in spending for preventative health and wellness. In fact, 2018, the United States spent $264 billion on wealth and fitness. What that means included in that $264 billion, gym memberships, at-home exercise equipment, exercise clothing, shoes, all the work. So we were number one in the world. However, they also found that the United States was 143rd in the world in actually exercising. Now think about that for a moment. Number one in the world in spending for exercise. I mean, after all, Stairmasters make great clothes hangers. But 143rd in actually doing. That great disconnect between spending and doing. Jesus addresses such a disconnection saying it ought not be in the life of the believer. In fact, verse 15 is very clear in what it states. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, you will seek to do what I would have you to do. In other words, the practice of our lives is to match the praise of our lips. Now, a lot of times we shy away from that teaching. We being evangelical Christians. We are afraid that if we teach the, the emphasis that Jesus places on obedience, that we will fall into to what's called libertinism. In other words, that, that we will forget the grace of God. And we will begin to view salvation by works. But I want you to understand that from the very beginning, salvation has always been by work, by grace, never works. See, I was testing you then to see if you were listening. Salvation's always been by grace, never works. Even when you go back to the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, for example, we recognize the Ten Commandments that are to guide God's people. But don't be quick to read over the preamble to the Ten Commandments where the Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Their deliverance preceded their obedience. God set them free, and then He said, because I have set you free, then you are to obey. This is how you are to live. That is the same pattern in the New Testament. Because we have been redeemed, this is how we are to live. Because God has redeemed us from slavery to sin, this is how we are to live in obedience to Him. Obedience always follows salvation. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin. That's why James in his letter can say, You show me your faith by what you say. I'll show you my faith by how I live, by my works. Works reveal salvation. That's why Jesus says, Our love for him will be revealed in how we obey. Now, this draws attention to his emphasis on his commandments. 
Because the logical question then is, what are his commandments? What are we supposed to obey? Now, there are certainly times where Jesus is very specific. Love your neighbor. Very specific command. However, we'll see as we look at this text that he expands commandments beyond just a list of do's and don'ts. I draw your attention down to verse 24. Now, remember I said earlier that Jesus will circle back around, and he does that here. He begins these two paragraphs with, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He ends in verse 24 by saying, the one who does not love me does not keep my words. That's the inverse. In other words, if you love me, you will keep my words. Words, not commandments. Jesus viewed every word that he taught as a command. So this is not just saying, what are the imperatives, the commands that we are to follow? It's saying that every word that Jesus taught, so that when he teaches the Good Samaritan, and saying, this is what love for your neighbor looks like, that's what we are to do. That when Jesus preaches the prophet Hosea and says, God desires mercy, not sacrifice, we are to live merciful. So he expands the scope, not just to a list of do's and don'ts, but to every word that he said. And That's where the challenge comes in for us, doesn't it? Because we recognize very quickly that we don't always do what Jesus said to do. We don't always say what Jesus would have us say. We don't always think what Jesus would have us think. And that can be discouraging. It can cause us to throw up our hands and say, well, I can't obey. This is too much. Well, I want you to know that our Lord never sets us up for failure. He sets us up to succeed. Look at the very next verse, verse 16. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. So we get this command, if you love me, you will obey. And just when we think, Lord, I can't obey, Jesus says, I'm going to ask the Father, and He will give you a helper. And I love the, the, the emphasis on that. Not He may give you another helper, or He might give you another helper. He will give you another helper. He says another helper because while Jesus was present with the disciples, He was the one able to encourage them with His words and His presence to obey. But He is going to to be ascending to the Father. He will no longer physically be with the disciples. So he says, I'm going to ask the, the Father to send another helper to be with you. And that, of course, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come up time and time again in this passage as Jesus teaches us about the helper. The word helper there is literally the word paraclete. Now, technically, in the Greek language, it meant legal aid. It's a word for a lawyer. One who represents a client in front of the judge. So the Holy Spirit represents us. However, that definition of paraclete expanded over time from the classical Greek definition. It came to mean one who consoles, who mediates, who encourages. So helper is a generic word that means one who gives whatever is needed. This is where I love studying different Bible translations. A Bible translator seeks to translate the Hebrew and the Greek into the language and the idiom of the people who will be reading it. So they work very hard to get the meaning of the word so that it's understandable. So because of that, in, some, in one idiom, that word helper was translated as one who will mother us. Because that particular people group understood the idea of mothering. And don't we all? 
So he's saying here, the Holy Spirit will come along, and I love that imagery, one who will mother us and supply what we need. To another Central, Central African uh, tribal group, the term helper means one who falls down beside us. The imagery in that people group is that of the Holy Spirit coming alongside one who has fallen. And the Spirit gets down on his knees and lifts them up, bandages them, and supplies exactly what is needed. He comes to the aid. Jesus describes the Holy Spirit in verse 17 as the Spirit of truth. Points out two things. It is the Spirit of truth because the Spirit will always point to Jesus. Remember, Jesus in John 14, 6 said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You will always know the Holy Spirit is present because where the Spirit is present, Jesus will be emphasized. The Holy Spirit wants to magnify the work of Jesus in the cross and in the resurrection. So where much is made of Jesus, you can say the Holy Spirit is present. But the Spirit of truth also refers to His very pragmatic work in our lives. He brings truth into our lives. Because honestly, we all have a great capacity for self-deception. To refuse to see the blind spots in our lives. To refuse to see the struggles that we may have. So the Holy Spirit comes to supply exactly what is needed. A few years ago, the boxer Muhammad Ali passed away. Many recognize Muhammad Ali as one of the greatest boxers who ever lived. And he's very famous not only for his boxing skills, but for his verbosity, how he spoke. Remember, uh, float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. But the truth is that he wouldn't have been where he was had it not been for a team around him. A team led by a man named Angelo Dundee, his corner man. For 15 years, Angelo Dundee worked behind the scenes in the corner. And speaking of his role, Angelo Dundee said, As a corner man, you have to learn to be whatever the boxer needs. There are times you have to be a, a surgeon and stitch them together. There are times that you have to be a, an engineer and figure out how they can deal with their opponent. Other times you have to be a psychologist and say what they need. Church, the Holy Spirit's our corner man, giving us what we need. That means when we need encouraging, the Holy Spirit encourages. When we need to be consoled, the Holy Spirit offers consolation. When we need to be convicted, the Holy Spirit brings conviction. Now, this begs the question. If the Holy Spirit is the helper to lead us to obey the commandments, why do we fail? If the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us, why do we still fail at times? Why do we still sin? Why do we fail to love our neighbor as we ought to? Well, I want you to notice that the word for Holy Spirit is helper, not maker. The Holy Spirit does not make us obey. He will help us to obey. We must humble ourselves to receive that help. Many years ago, I remember it very clearly. It was around Christmas. My wife's parents had come up, Clarence and Susie, going to celebrate some of the Christmas season around us. And it just so happened at that time that the doorknob on our front door broke, quit working. Spring or something had happened, so I set in to repair the doorknob. Now, there was a little added pressure because for those of you who are married, know when you're making a repair and your father-in-law is there, you want to do it right. There's something within you that still wants your father-in-law to say, you know what, my daughter married a man that can take care of things around the house. 
So I set in to change the doorknob. Read the instructions. I dive into working, and Clarence is there with me. He's just chit-chatting. We're enjoying it. And he says, uh, Mark, um, I-, I think you're putting the doorknob in backwards. Now, I confess to you now that at that moment, pride rose up within me. And in my mind, I thought, I am not. I have read the instructions. I have an earned doctorate. I am Dr. Herod. I can put in a doorknob. So I just said, no, I've read the instructions, Clarence. We're, we're good. We're good. He said, okay, okay. So I continued putting in the doorknob backwards. After it was all done, that thing would not shut correctly at all. And he was right all along. He was offering help. But in my pride, I wouldn't receive it. I was bent on thinking, I know what I'm doing. The Holy Spirit's in that role. To guide and direct us, not forcing us. So it calls for us to humble ourselves, to admit we need His help, and to follow Him in that. That's one of the things that sets us apart from the world. The world does not have the Spirit, nor will the world seek to obey Jesus. That's what he says in verse 17. The world cannot receive the Spirit of truth. Why? Because the world doesn't believe. The language in verse 17 of it neither sees Him nor knows Him is faith language. The world does not see the Holy Spirit, not because the Spirit can't be seen. The Spirit is invisible. The world can't see because the world has no faith. The world does not know Him. The world does not believe. We are in contrast to the world. We know Him. We have faith. Why do we know Him? Because He dwells within us and will be in you. We will have an experience with the Holy Spirit that speaks of the reality of the Spirit and the reality that we are truly alive in Christ. Jesus picks up this theme in the very next paragraph. The fact that we are alive in Him. He ends in verse, 20, uh, 20, or verse 19 by saying, Because I live, you also will live. Jesus shifts gears. After He talks about the Spirit dwelling within us, He says, Now, I'm not leaving you as orphans. He begins talking about His resurrection. He says, I'll come to you. Yet a little while the world will see me no more. In other words, he is going to die upon the cross, be buried, and he will rise from the dead. He will be resurrected. But you recognize that after he came back from the dead, he did not have a public ministry. He never appeared to the masses. He appeared to the disciples. Hence what he said, I will come to you and you will see me. The world will not see me. So I'm not forsaking you. And Because I live, you will live also. I cannot overstate the crucial importance of the resurrection to our faith. It is the cornerstone. If you take away the resurrection, our faith shatters like glass being hit by a rock. The Apostle Paul said, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then we are still in our sins. There is no salvation. That's why Jesus says emphatically, because He is alive, we are alive. We are are endowed with new life because He lives. So He says, in that day, the day of His resurrection, you will know. What will you know? That I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. That post the resurrection, there will be a deepening of our understanding and our walk with Him. See, the language here is relational. That as we come to grasp the fact that Jesus is fully God and the intimacy of their relationship within the Trinity, we will begin to understand that it is Christ living within us that empowers obedience by the Holy Spirit. Now lest that become too theoretical, Jesus brings us back down to earth in verse 21. 
Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. In other words, when we start talking about abiding in Christ and the relationship of the Trinity, it's easy to move away into speculation and things that are hard to wrap our minds around. But Jesus says, even if you don't understand the fullness of that, obey. Obedience shows our love. Verse 21 speaks of something that will happen as we obey. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now what he's speaking of there is a result of obedience. When Jesus says in verse 21, He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now follow the progression. We are saved because of the love of God. We love him because he first loved us. So we experience salvation. And we love Jesus. So how do we show that we love Jesus? Step two, we obey. Obedience shows our love for Him. Now, as we obey, guess what happens? We grow in the depth of our intimacy with God. So you create this circle. Love for God brings obedience. Obedience brings us to a fuller expression, experience of the love of God, which brings us back around to obedience. You see, when we are engaged in obeying and striving to obey, we come to know Him in ways that we had not previously known Him. Eugene Peterson, uh, I should say the late Eugene Peterson, was a prolific author and a pastor. He wrote a book about the role of Scripture in the life of the believer. The name of the book is called Eat This Book, taken from Ezekiel and Revelation. And in that book where he talks about the role of Scripture in our lives, he reflects on a time when he was around the age of 35 and he bought some running shoes and started running. Became an avid runner. He was averaging running a 10K once a month and once a year running a marathon. And his love for running spurred him to begin subscribing to running magazines, three or four runner, running journals that he would read vociferously. But then something happened. He pulled a muscle. He couldn't run. And he noticed something, that when he was not running, he was not reading those magazines. He stopped reading. He realized that reading was an extension of something he was a part of. That when he started running again, guess what happened? He began reading the magazines again. He was reading for companionship and affirmation of the experience of running, things that would guide him to run better. He writes, the parallel with reading Scripture is striking. If I'm not living in active response to the living God, in other words, if I'm not striving to obey, reading about His creation, His salvation, His holiness will not hold my interest for very long. The most important question is not, what does this passage mean? The most important question is, what can I obey? What do I need to do because of this? Jesus says that as we do that, He will manifest Himself to us more and more. Now this causes a question from Judas. Now notice how quick John is to say, not Iscariot. This is Judas, the, Jude the lesser, as it were. So Judas, not Iscariot, asked him a question. Lord, how are you going to show yourself to us? Remember, they're thinking in terms of Jesus' 
uh, earthly kingdom. How are you going to show yourself to us and not the world? In other words, Jesus, why are you just going to manifest yourself to us disciples and not the world as a whole? Bring the kingdom in. Jesus answers by making it again very personal. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. Abide. That word home connects with what Jesus said earlier in John 14. Where he said, in my Father's house are many rooms where my Father dwells. What he's teaching here is that the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Gives us a foretaste of the glory that we will experience when we are with him in heaven. Just a little taste. And the language of abiding meets us at our deepest needs and longings. That longing to be loved. Tim Keller put it like this once. Every one of us longs for two things. We, longed to be, we long to be known and we long to be loved. Our greatest fears are these. That we will be known and not loved. Or that we will be loved and not really known. We long for someone that knows us and loves us. And he is saying here in John that that need is met in the Lord. In his love. And it's displayed as we obey. Obedience deepens our walk with God. And we have help to obey. Well, over ten years ago, a movie was released entitled Master and Commander. It tells the story of a British warship, the HMS Surprise, that during the Napoleonic Wars has been sent into the South Pacific to stop a French ship that has been raiding English whalers. The movie builds to a climax where there is a battle between the HMS Surprise and the French warship, the Acheron. And at the end of the movie, the English are preparing to bury their dead at sea. They do this by, playing, by placing that deceased man in a canvas bag and then, of course, committing them to the ocean. And as part of the process, the bag would be sewn up. A young man by the name of Blakeney, a midshipman training to be an officer. He's 14 years old. He's kneeling beside the body of his best friend, Peter Calamy. Peter was killed in the battle. And as Blakeney is kneeling there, a seaman by the name of Davies starts to sew up the canvas bag when Blakeney says, no, no, stop. I want to do this. He was my friend. I want to do that. So Blakeney reaches out and he takes the needle, but he stops. And he looks at Davies and says, but will you help me? Because Blakeney only has one arm. He wants to sew. He wants to honor his friend. But he can't without help. That's where we are. To hear this command and we want to obey, we recognize that we can't do it without help. And God has supplied that help in the Holy Spirit. He is with us. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me, if you will.
Father, I conclude this message by thanking you for your great love. You've not left us alone. You have given us the helper par excellence. You've given us your very presence in the Holy Spirit. Lord, we confess that any failures are our responsibility. So we ask you, Lord, to forgive us for the times that we have not sought the help of your Spirit. Forgive us for the pride that has so often characterized our lives where we try to do things our own way. Grant us grace, O Lord. And I pray that you will give us a taste of the blessing of knowing you as we strive to obey, that you will, Lord, fulfill your word to grow us in intimacy with you, to know you in a way that we had not known you before. Grow us in our love and in our walk with you. Grant this, Father. Grant it by the power of your Holy Spirit who we desperately need. In the name of Jesus, amen.